Welcome to Addiction in Simple Terms. My name is Dr. Julian Keats, and I'm a specialist in addiction medicine with over 10 years' experience assessing and treating drug and alcohol-related problems. And in this podcast, I explain some of the important ideas in addiction to help you make sense of your experiences and hopefully make some changes for the better in your life. This is episode 13. Over the last three episodes, I've spoken about stress, the mechanisms underlying fear, anxiety and avoidance, and the main types of anxiety disorder a doctor might diagnose. In this episode, I'm going to discuss a particular form of psychological therapy for anxiety known as Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, or CBT. I strongly recommend you listen to the previous three episodes before this one because they provide some background for what I'm going to discuss here. And if you've listened to those episodes previously but it wasn't for some time, you may want to go back and re-listen to refresh yourself. Before we start, an important disclaimer. The information presented here is my opinion for educational purposes only. It's not medical advice. I am a medical doctor and my aim is to help you understand and embrace the approaches that may help you with anxiety, but you shouldn't consider this podcast as a substitute for proper professional treatment. If you or someone you care for is experiencing serious problems, you should seek out a formal assessment with a family doctor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist or some other trained mental health professional who can assess your individual circumstances and provide specific tailored advice and if need be personalised treatment or referral to the right treatment provider. Okay, let's make a start. Treating anxiety involves psychological therapy, sometimes medications, and as you might imagine, attention to lifestyle factors. In this episode, I'll be covering psychological therapy, or talking therapy, because it's the first-line treatment recommended for most types of anxiety disorder these days. There are many different forms of therapy that fall under the umbrella of psychological therapy, but we'll be concentrating on cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, because it has the most reliable evidence from scientific studies of benefit in anxiety. So what is CBT? Well, CBT is a form of therapy that's focused on teaching and practicing skills. It's typically done with a trained therapist or psychologist, but you can also learn these skills using a self-directed training manual, or increasingly, like many things in our modern world, with online or internet-based programs or courses. The techniques are taught using tailored examples and exercises during the session, and then these skills are practiced by you taking them back to your daily life and using them in the real world between sessions. This helps you to find out what does and doesn't work for you, and when you come back to the next session of therapy, you'll review how things went, what things you may need to work on, and you'll make adjustments. And then you'll go out and try things over again, because that's all part of the learning experience. Over a number of sessions, along with your practice in the real world in between, you'll gain a variety of new skills or a set of tools that you can then select from and deploy as the situation requires when you go back and face what you have to face in your daily life. And hopefully these tools will help you to feel better and to function better. Now, CBT is a first-line treatment for anxiety disorders, but it's not just for if you have a medically diagnosed anxiety disorder. 
It's also useful for people who are troubled by worry, avoidance, or feelings of anxiety when going about the business of their day-to-day lives, even if their problems or symptoms may not reach the threshold for a formal diagnosis. And CBT is also used for a range of other emotional and behavioural health issues, including depression, grief, substance use disorders, eating disorders, and managing stress or chronic pain. The skills you learn from CBT will also help you improve your performance and increase your happiness and productivity more generally, whether that be at home, at work, in your relationships, or in coping with stress and managing emotions. Despite all these positives and potential uses, CBT is not a magic bullet. Like any new skill, it takes time and effort to first learn and then practice the techniques. So it requires commitment. But you'll find the skills and understanding you gain practical and useful, and you'll be able to apply them yourself in your own life going forward to face new challenges in the future. So what can you expect in a typical course of CBT? To start with, you'll get an introduction and some education about the fundamentals that underpin CBT. Just briefly, this rests on the idea that the thoughts we have, called our cognitions, the things we do, our actions or behaviours, and the feelings we experience, our emotions and internal bodily sensations, are all interrelated. You can picture this as a diagram of a triangle. At one corner are our cognitions, at another corner are our behaviours, and at the third corner of the triangle are our feelings, with each corner influencing the other two. So in our picture, each side of the triangle would be a two-way arrow. Now for most people, your feelings or emotions seem, on some level, to just happen to you. You don't typically choose what emotion to feel, and it's not so easy to just reach in and change your emotions. But your thoughts or cognitions, both their content and the way you think, and your behaviours, the things you do and don't do, are amenable to some degree of voluntary control, though granted, it may take some effort and practice. CBT takes the view that by learning new ways to address and manage our cognitions and behaviours, we can also influence our emotional experience and move towards a more positive and more productive outcome. Now, if you think back to our working definition of anxiety from previous episodes... Anxiety is a sense of unease or apprehension in response to an anticipated future threat or danger that affects how we think, how we act, and how we feel. Using fancier terms, anxiety affects our cognitions, behaviours, and emotions. We see anxiety become a problem when our cognitions become focused on excessive or unproductive worry for worry's sake that doesn't accomplish anything, but just seems to feed on itself. It may be worry about the size or likelihood of a particular threat, or it may be worry about our inability to cope. Typically, when we're anxious, we overestimate the threat and or underestimate our ability to cope and survive. We also see anxiety become a problem when it affects our behaviour, causing fearful avoidance out of proportion to the real threat, defensive overreactions like hostility and aggression, and or use of maladaptive, harmful coping behaviours, such as eating more junk food or resorting to alcohol and drug use. When we're stressed and anxious, we also tend to pull away from family and friends, we stop doing the things we used to enjoy, we exercise less, and we sleep less. 
And the feelings or emotions associated with anxiety can be a problem when they become overwhelming to the point that they affect our mood and our ability to function, or they produce bodily sensations such as heart palpitations, tremors, sweats, fatigue, breathlessness, or gastrointestinal symptoms. And it's not uncommon for people with anxiety to visit the doctor looking for a physical condition that explains their symptoms. It stands to reason that CBT can help with problematic anxiety by intentionally addressing our cognitions and our behaviours, and by extension influencing our feelings and emotions. Okay, so we've covered the introduction, the education side of things. And it's important that you grasp the overall concept, because that's the springboard for the rest of the process. With the introduction to CBT out of the way, the next thing is a full assessment. Of course, we need to identify the central problem or issue that has brought someone to the point of seeking help. What it is they want to work on or change. But it also helps to hear the patient's story, and to understand someone's background, where they're coming from, and where they're at their life circumstances, their strengths, their supports, and their sources of stress. So the assessment phase includes a social and medical history, a review of any past mental health diagnoses or current symptoms, and any signs of functional impairment, such as difficulties at work, at home, or in our social relationships. An assessment of alcohol and other drug use is also important, because all too often substance use behaviour is a response people use to avoid, block out, or numb the difficult thoughts and feelings associated with anxiety and depression. When we're considering the problem that you're seeking help with, the aim is to look at it in detail and to try to identify where things began, how they've progressed or changed over time, and their consequences. We aim to break down the problem into its parts and separate out the cognitions, the behaviours, and the feelings, but also to look at how these different components influence each other. Some questions that are useful to tease these things apart might be, what were you doing at the time when these feelings came over you? As you were feeling that emotion, what were you thinking? What were some of the thoughts that went through your mind? What was going on in your body when that happened? What did you do, or what do you usually do when you feel like that? And what do you avoid doing because of those thoughts or feelings? Now, when someone's struggling with anxiety things often end up all rolled in together. It's a bit like a snowball once it's rolled all the way to the bottom of the hill, with sticks and leaves and rocks and dirt all mixed in together with the snow. What we're trying to do is follow that snowball back up the mountain to see where it began and what set it in motion before all the other muck got rolled in. It helps in this assessment phase to keep a sort of diary or journal where you record a few words or a couple of sentences whenever difficult feelings arise, to capture that feeling and try to also note down what you're doing at the time, what you're thinking, and also your mood prior to and following the episode. This self-assessment or self-monitoring provides some real-time hard data to work with in your sessions, rather than just relying on the vagaries of later recall. You can analyse this data with your therapist or by yourself, to recognise the cognitions, behaviours and emotions at play in your life, to clarify the root cause of the problems you're experiencing, and to set some specific goals around what you want to achieve. (music) 
From there, the sessions will move on to the nuts and bolts of learning various CBT skills, which is to say, learning the what, when and how of the CB tools you might use. These fall into two main groups, cognitive tools and behavioural tools. But the end goal of all of them is better emotion regulation and improved functioning, feeling better and performing better at work, at home and in your relationships. I'm not going to try to teach you all the tools here in this podcast. That's what you need to do in your therapy sessions. But I will give you a bit of a teaser so you have some idea of what to expect in CBT therapy. The cognitive tools focus on the worry aspect of anxiety. This tends to include the overestimation of threat, the underestimation of our coping ability, and the unhelpful repetitive thought loops we get caught in. An important part of the cognitive approach is to recognise that many of our thoughts are actually just assumptions that we treat as if they were facts. If we can catch our mistaken assumptions and challenge them before they have their downstream effects on behaviour and emotions, remembering our cognitive, behavioural, emotional triangle, we give ourselves the opportunity to try out new interpretations of our thought content and or our thought processes. To put a name on some of the cognitive tools you would typically learn in CBT, these include keeping a thought record to track recurring thoughts and common themes and their triggers and consequences, guided discovery to identify and capture automatic thoughts, learning about cognitive distortions or common habits of mind, using a mental filter to harness our tendency to selective attention, prediction testing or hypothesis testing, and cognitive restructuring to rebuild or rewrite our cognitions with a more balanced and rational perspective. Now let's pause here for a word about uncertainty. For many people with anxiety and worry, one of the underlying issues is a very low tolerance for uncertainty. Worriers fear uncertainty because of what it may bring or what it may mean. And they engage in various safety-seeking behaviours, such as excessive information seeking, double and triple checking everything, or constantly seeking reassurance to try and minimise or completely eliminate uncertainty. But of course, uncertainty is a part of life, and though being careful or cautious is sensible, being paralysed by the fear of uncertainty is not helpful. The cognitive tools I've already mentioned can be applied to explore a person's underlying thoughts and beliefs about uncertainty, and to move them towards a fairer and more balanced acceptance of uncertainty to help them get unstuck. Okay, let's now turn and look at the behavioural tools. These focus on the avoidance behaviours, as well as teaching some techniques to reduce or reappraise the physiological responses to anxiety and the fight-flight reaction. Some of the behavioural tools include keeping an activity record, Behavioural activation using prospective activity scheduling, including pleasurable activity scheduling. Graded task assignment to help you get unstuck when procrastination is an issue. Development of more effective problem-solving skills. And somatic quietening to help regain control of physiological responses and bodily sensations using meditation, grounding, breathing exercises and relaxation training. 
in some cases of generalised anxiety, where a person worries about everything all the time, and as soon as one thing is addressed, they seem to just move on and worry about the next thing, there are a few other tools. These include distraction techniques to address repetitive worrying in the moment and direct the energy somewhere else. Setting a time limit for the worry, where if, say, two full minutes of thinking on the topic has not achieved anything or made you feel better, you use a distraction technique. Scheduling worry times, to contain the time spent worrying about everyday things to, say, just a set 30-minute period each day. And using a worry list, where worries are written down on a list as they come up, but then put aside to be dealt with only in the scheduled worry time the next day. Sometimes these are all combined and you create an imaginary or even a real world worry box where you collect your various worries and contain them to only be opened for 30 minutes a day or every few days at a set time. Although you need to make sure that that's not right before bedtime. Next we need to talk about exposure therapy which combines both cognitive and behavioural aspects. Exposure therapy can be particularly useful in specific phobias, panic-related anxiety and social anxiety, because just telling someone not to be anxious or that they will be okay is often not that effective, but teaching them some skills and guiding them through the exercises allows them to learn for themselves from their own experience, which is much more powerful. Exposure therapy involves selecting an exercise or activity where you intentionally expose yourself to a moderately anxiety-provoking situation and then use some of the behavioural techniques to quiet or settle the physiological response. Afterwards, you reappraise your initial cognitive predictions in light of the fact that your worst imagined fears didn't come to pass and you did actually cope. And in doing so, you're restructuring your cognitive predictions for next time. At first, you do this in the session with a therapist there for safety and support, but then it's essential that you start practicing the exercise as part of your homework assignments between sessions. The intensity of the anxiety exposure can be gradually increased over a number of sessions and homework exercises, and your ability to tolerate and push through the distress with less and less support required from the therapist grows with each repetition of the exercise. The fancier name for this tool is graded exposure therapy, and what we're learning to master here is distress tolerance. Though it may not sound that appetising initially to someone with anxiety, it can actually be the most effective type of therapy, especially for specific phobias and panic, and the results can be seen quite quickly within a matter of weeks. So hopefully, that's been a useful explanation of the various cognitive and behavioural tools you might be learning, and how you can combine these tools to gain valuable insights and build your confidence using graded exposure therapy. Along the way, it's useful to continue your self-assessment diary to record and keep track of your activities and to capture your feelings and thoughts and the associated behaviours, as well as your mood and symptoms of anxiety. This continual reassessment or self-monitoring will help you see where things are improving and mark your small successes as you go, but it'll also help you to identify where unhelpful patterns or responses are still an issue, indicating where the approach may need some tweaking or adjustment. Remember, that's all part of the learning process. Now, looking at your CBT course as a whole, 
As you progress through therapy, you'll become more confident with your own self-assessment of challenges and self-monitoring of progress. You'll be able to break down the issues into their component parts and differentiate the cognitions, the behaviours and the emotions. You'll have practised the various skills and acquired a range of cognitive and behavioural tools you can use depending on the situation. You'll have figured out which tools you're more comfortable with and which ones work better than others for you. You'll be able to select and apply the right tools for any given situation and you'll have grown through the use of graded exposure therapy exercises. Eventually, the therapist you've been working with can begin to take a step back. You'll become your own therapist and you'll be able to continue using these techniques after the course of therapy is finished. To reiterate what I've already mentioned up front, CBT does take commitment. You need to go into it with a positive attitude, or at least some hope that there is a possibility for change, and an openness to try something new. You need to be able to focus and concentrate on the work you're doing. And it's essential that you apply what you learn by putting in the time and effort to practice, practice, practice. You do need to roll up your sleeves and do the work. But if you can do these things, CBT offers the real potential to help you with both today's problems and tomorrow's problems into the future. Research suggests that when CBT is used for people with an anxiety disorder, 8 out of 10 people will improve, and in 5 out of 10 people, symptoms improve to the point that they no longer meet criteria for an anxiety disorder at all. Along with the improvement in symptoms, corresponding improvements in quality of life and decreased disability are also seen. Those promising results are seen for both face-to-face in-person CBT and online digital CBT programs that you can work through yourself without a therapist. For comparison, the results seen with medication treatment for anxiety are no better than CBT and are frequently associated with troubling side effects. And unlike medications which really only help you when you're taking them and then symptoms return when you stop your tablets, the effects of CBT are long-lasting. The things you learn in CBT stay with you for life, and the benefits persist for years after you've finished your course of therapy. Well, that's probably enough for this episode. I hope I've shed some light on the role of CBT in the treatment of anxiety, because as you can probably tell, I think it's a very worthwhile approach. If you're interested in learning more about how CBT might help, I recommend you go to www.thiswayup.org.au or just type CBT online into Google and I guarantee you a whole heap of search results will come up with both free and paid content. I'd like to leave you with a useful saying that I think applies to CBT and that is, we can't know the future but we can prepare for it nonetheless. My name is Dr. Julian Keats, and this is Addiction in Simple Terms.